Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto, and we're continuing on in the series Diversity in Early Christianity. This series focuses on a historical look at the variety of Christian groups that existed, especially in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries. We're trying to get a glimpse of what were the variety of beliefs and practices that existed among different groups of followers of Jesus. Today's episode concentrates on Judean followers of Jesus, Jewish followers of Jesus, and the evidence we have for those who continue to follow Judean ways of life and also believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. In particular, we're going to look at the evidence for the church at Jerusalem, who were centered around James in the first century. We then move on to evidence in the second century from Justin Martyr that further confirms the continuing existence and actual gradual marginalization of Judean followers of Jesus in the second century, who continue to follow the Torah as well as following Jesus. Then we deal with the issue of the Ebionites. The only evidence we have for this group called the Ebionites is the patristic authors, the church fathers, church fathers such as Irenaeus, who give us a glimpse into a group they call the Ebionites, who viewed Jesus as a man who followed the law to the T, and who, as a result of this following of the law, was considered the Messiah and proclaimed the Messiah by God himself. So we'll investigate this particular group of Ebionites If you'd like to research this topic further on your own and read further on the history of the Ebionites and other Judean followers of Jesus, I would highly recommend a recent book by Oscar Skarsauna and Ryder Valvik. These are the editors of a book called Jewish Believers in Jesus, published by Hendrickson Publishers in 2007. This is a collection of a variety of chapters by different authors that deal with the Ebionites and other Judean followers of Jesus. I hope you enjoy this historical look at the variety of followers of Jesus in the first centuries. Once you're finished listening to the podcast, feel free to consult my website, philipharland.com, where you can read more about this diversity of early Christianity. Let me just start by saying a couple things about our main point for today and what I hope you get out of uh, the discussion today. We're going to be tracing some of the evidence for Judean followers of Jesus in the 2nd to 4th centuries, especially the Abbeyites. In the process of tracing these, we'll begin to see what we can call Jewish forms of Christianity, but we have to remember that all Christianity began as Jewish and that what we're actually seeing is the gradual marginalization of followers of Jesus who continue to follow the Torah, who continue to follow the law, continue to practice Judean culture. There's a sense in which some of these Judean followers of Jesus, including the Ebionites, you could see as the heirs of the Jerusalem church. James is especially respected by these Judean followers of Jesus, as is Peter, two main figures associated with the Jerusalem church. And we're going to do it by looking at four main things. First of all, briefly talking about the Jerusalem church. Secondly, we'll look at the Ebionites as a group that is referred to within patristic writers. And thirdly, we'll look at the gospels that are quoted by church fathers, church fathers who refer to these gospels as being gospels used by Judeans. Fourthly, we'll look at the pseudo-Clementine writings. 
So let's talk about the Jerusalem church to begin with. That's a little bit of background to understanding later forms of Judean followers of Jesus. Our evidence for the followers of Jesus at Jerusalem, remember that that's the first group there is of any followers of Jesus is in Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, ends up becoming a prominent leader within that group of Jesus followers. Our indirect evidence that we have about what that group of Jesus followers was like points to their observance of Judean culture in a full way. The difference was that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. We also get further evidence from Paul's letter to the Galatians regarding what we can say is a difference between Pauline forms of Christianity and the type of Judean Christianity that was taking place in Jerusalem. It's precisely in Galatians where Paul talks about difficulties over Gentiles being circumcised in Galatia. It turned out that the leaders that came through after Paul was there were advocating circumcision among the Gentiles. And it turned out that those leaders are associated with Jerusalem, are associated with James. And when Paul has a run-in with Cephas, Peter, over the issue of eating with Gentiles in Galatians, he once again associates the people who convinced Peter to do that with people coming from Jerusalem. People from James came and influenced how Peter thought about things, is how Paul puts it. Even from the problems Paul has in Galatians, we know that we have the followers of Jesus practicing Judean culture in a full way, including circumcision. We get continued evidence that James is primary when it comes to many Judean groups who are following Jesus as the Messiah. One saying that's attributed to Jesus regarding James is preserved in a document that isn't particularly Jewish. The Gospel of Thomas is one of those Nag Hammadi documents. Most scholars would think that it goes back to the second century. This is a collection of just the sayings of Jesus. Saying number 12 that's preserved there draws attention to this centrality of James for the early followers of Jesus, including those that were centered in Jerusalem. The disciples said to Jesus, We know that you are going to leave us. Who will be our leader? Jesus said to them, No matter where you are, you are to go to James the just, for whose sake heaven and earth came into being. So what's interesting here is obviously the prominence of James the Just, but we have it preserved in a document that wouldn't have favored James. Gospel of Thomas thinks of Thomas as the main guy who received revelation from Jesus. We hear more of James the Just, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church in a variety of places, but never very directly. We hear about his death. His death most likely took place in the 60s CE. He most likely was martyred, specifically because he was leader of a movement who believed Jesus was the Messiah. Hegesippus is a guy who writes a history that has mostly been lost to us. He writes in the second century, but Eusebius in the fourth centuries uh, preserves substantial segments of Hegesippus's history, including the story of James being stoned to death. Josephus also has a story about a figure named James being killed. So in the 60s CE, before the temple is destroyed, James, the leader of the Jesus movement at Jerusalem, is killed. 66 to 70 is when that revolt takes place in Palestine that ends in the Romans ultimately coming in, quelling the revolt, and on top of that, destroying the temple. 70 CE is when the temple gets destroyed. The destruction of the temple we can't go into in detail, but it has a huge impact on all forms of Judaism because it's the central symbol of Judaism. 
the revolt that's going on, the violence that's taking place in Jerusalem and surrounding areas, and the ultimate destruction of the temple impacts followers of Jesus just as much as it impacts any other Jew in the first century. There's a legend about what happens. The fourth century Christian author from Cyprus, Epiphanius, refers to this legend. And the legend is that the uh, followers of Jesus that were centered around James evacuate from Jerusalem and as a group together resettle in the Decapolis. To the east of the Sea of Galilee is the Decapolis, 10 Greek cities. And Pella is one of those cities. So a legend exists that the followers of Jesus that were centered in Jerusalem evacuated Jerusalem during the revolt and resettled in Pella. Epiphanius, for example, associates that group as the source of the Ebionites, who we're going to get into in detail. Now, that's a story that we can't confirm. It's a story that's ambiguously told to us. It's very difficult to know what historical truth there is in it. So this point two here that we're dealing with today is the Ebionites. The term itself just means poor ones in Hebrew. I just want to deal with the Ebionites and some other Judean followers of Jesus generally here in this point. We do have sources that do not refer to Ebionites specifically, but who nonetheless talk about followers of Jesus who practice the Jewish law and who engage in Judean culture in some way. Justin is one of them. Justin Martyr is an author in the mid-2nd century. He wrote a variety of writings, including an apology, sort of defending Christianity. And he, The document I really want to talk about right now that gives us a glimpse into some Judean followers of Jesus who are following the Torah in a full way, but nonetheless still following Jesus. And it's in his dialogue with Trypho. Justin, a follower of Jesus who's Gentile and very philosophical and trained as a philosopher, debating with a Judean, Trypho, in Asia Minor. Both Justin and this Judean, Trypho, are well-trained in philosophy. Here's how the dialogue goes in this section. Trypho again objected, If a man knows that what you say, what you, Justin, say is true, and professing Jesus to be the Christ, believes in and obeys him, yet desires also to observe the commandments of the Mosaic law, shall he be saved? So here's Trypho's question. He's actually setting Justin up, he thinks, for a fall. Because Trypho knows of followers of Jesus who object to Judeans' followers of Jesus who follow the Torah. Trypho knows that. And he's critiquing, in other words, Christianity, because they will not accept Judeans who follow Jesus and follow the Torah. In my opinion, I replied, Justin speaking here, I say such a man will be saved. So a Judean who continues to practice the Mosaic law in a full way, but who follows Jesus, will be saved in Justin's view. Unless he exerts every effort to influence other men, I have in mind the Gentiles, whom Christ circumcised from all errors, to practice the same rites as himself, informing them that they cannot be saved unless they do so. You yourself did this at the opening of our discussion when you said that I would not be saved unless I kept the Mosaic precepts. So Justin's reply is, he doesn't object to Judeans following the Mosaic law. He objects to what Paul objected to. Judeans advocating that in order to follow Jesus, Gentiles need to follow the Mosaic law. So Justin's more in line with a Pauline way of thought here on this point. But let's go on in the way the debate goes here because this gives us a little bit more in, uh, insight into these Judean followers of Jesus in the 2nd century. 
But why, pressed Trifo, did you say, in my opinion, such a man will be saved? There must, therefore, be other Christians who hold a different opinion. Yes, Trifo, I conceded. There are some Christians who boldly refuse to have conversation or meals with such persons. We're seeing here what I'm talking about as the marginalization of Judeans who follow Jesus. Gradually being looked at by others, certain others, as heretics. There are some Christians who boldly refuse to have conversation or meals with such persons. I don't agree with such Christians. But if some, due to their instability of will, desire to observe as many of the Mosaic precepts as possible, while at the same time they place their hope in Christ, and if they desire to perform the eternal and natural acts of justice and piety, yet wish to live with us Christians and believers, as I already stated, not persuading them to be circumcised like themselves, or to keep the Sabbath, or to perform any similar acts, then it is my opinion that we Christians should receive them and associate with them in every way as kinsmen and brethren. But if any of your people, Trifo, profess their belief in Christ, and at the same time force the Christian Gentiles to follow the law instituted through Moses, or refuse to share in communion with them this same common life, I certainly will also not approve of them. But I think that those Gentiles who have been induced to follow the practices of the Judean law, and at the same time profess their faith in Christ of God, will probably be saved. Interesting. So he's saying he thinks that, first of all, Judeans who follow the practices of Mosaic law and follow Jesus are fine. Judeans who practice the Mosaic law and follow Jesus but advocate that Gentiles have to do the same are not fine. The Gentiles who get convinced by Judeans to follow the Mosaic law may be fine. Nonetheless, we're seeing the dynamics of one author's opinion in the second century about this form of Christianity. That there are Christians still fully practicing the Mosaic law and there are debates between different groups over how this should be done. There are also followers of Jesus doing what the followers of Jesus who passed through after Paul was in Galatia are doing. Namely, of course you need to be circumcised. Remember that we explained the rationale that those uh, other Judean leaders had. It's natural to expect that people who want to belong to a Judean movement like the Jesus movement need to be circumcised, need to follow the Torah. Let's move on to the Ebionites themselves, people who are labeled, are called Ebionites in the literature. In the Hebrew Bible, in various places, Ebionim, poor ones, is used in a very positive manner. In fact, in many of the Psalms and in other places in the Hebrew Bible, the Ebionim are contrasted to the oppressors. And the Ebionim, the poor ones, are the poor ones who will ultimately be saved in the end. And the oppressors are ultimately the ones who will be destroyed in the end. God stands up for the poor. So this idea of taking on Ebionites as a title for your own self might be a natural one within Judean culture in the first century. Just before the time we're dealing with, the Dead Sea Scrolls use the term Ebionim in a similar manner to speak of the righteous ones. Then you can imagine in relation to Jesus' sayings about the poor, you can link some of those ideas potentially up with that, as well as there's evidence in Paul that perhaps the followers of Jesus at Jerusalem itself think of themselves as the poor ones in a positive sense. The first time we have a group of followers of Jesus labeled Ebionites is in the Church Fathers, what are also known as the Patristic Writings. In this discussion of the Ebionites and their practices and beliefs, I'm going to concentrate on Irenaeus, who seems to be our most reliable 
source from the patristic writers, but we'll also touch on Hippolytus, another author of the early 3rd century, and Oregon, also from the 3rd century, who give us further confirmation as well as expanding on what we find in Irenaeus. In particular, we're going to look at, first of all, the Christology of the Abionites, how they viewed Jesus. And in the process of talking about that key issue that is brought up by the patristic authors, and that's their main concentration, is the Christology, we'll also deal with the practices in terms of the following of the Torah that the Ebionites engaged in, and finally discuss the writings that they use along the way as well, namely the Torah, and it seems that the Gospel of Matthew may have been a favorite gospel to use among the Ebionites. It's in about 190 CE that Irenaeus refers to a group that he labels the Ebionites. And we'll soon see that Irenaeus seems to be the main source we should use because most subsequent authors that talk about the Ebionites seem to be dependent on Irenaeus for some of their information. Before we get into the sources and further into the actual evidence of what Irenaeus attributes to the Ebionites, it's worth saying a few words about problems in using these sources on this point. One of the tendencies that Irenaeus has and that other subsequent anti-heresy writers is to assume that every heretical group had a founder. Every heresy will have a founder, a teacher, who began the whole thing and deceived people into following him and brought them over to the bad side. And so with the Ebionites, they do the same thing. So this idea that there was a guy named Ebion seems to be made up in order to fit that scenario that most of the anti-heresy writers work with. But let's get into Irenaeus, which is our earliest evidence and the one that others are dependent on. Here's the passage from Irenaeus upon which most other sources are dependent. And here we have outlined some of the key practices and beliefs of the Ebionites. We need to be careful in how we use this, but it seems to be that we do have some reliable information about what practices these Judean followers of Jesus engaged in. Here, Irenaeus, uh, who's that guy who lives in France, Lyon, who used to be from Asia Minor and hung out with Polycarp when he was a kid. So we're reading from his writing against the heresies, and here's what he says. He's just been talking about a variety of other heretics, who believe in gnosis and believe in knowledge, including Corinthus and Carpocration. And he goes on to this group here. Those who are called Ebionites acknowledge that the world was made by God, but their attitude towards the Lord is like that of Corinthus and Carpocrates. They use only the gospel, which is according to Matthew, and they reject the apostle Paul, calling him an apostate from the law. They endeavor to interpret the prophetic writings in a rather speculative way. They are circumcised and they persevere in the practices of the law and in a Jewish manner of life to such an extent that they venerate Jerusalem as the house of God. So here we have a very small paragraph with a whole lot of little pieces of information given to us. What's interesting though is the way in which Irenaeus says this is not ultra-condemnatory, He's condemning them as a group and then explaining what they do. But he doesn't nitpick on all the things he's telling us. It's not over the top, is it? The way in which he talks about the Ebionites here. And it seems that this is our most reliable information that we have at all for understanding what a particular group that was either labeled by others as Ebionites or who called themselves Ebionites practiced. Now, it's important to note already at this point, depending on which author you're looking at, it's hard to know which is being referred to. A particular group called the Ebionites, who would have called themselves the Ebionites, or this scenario, 
Many patristic writers simply call Ebionites any followers of Jesus who practice the Judean law. So that's a bit of a problem in sorting out, and we have to keep it in our mind. That sometimes it seems certain authors might be just saying Ebionites as a catch-all category for any follower of Jesus who follows the Judean law. Other authors may be referring to a specific group who called themselves the poor ones. It seems that Irenaeus may be dealing with that, may be dealing with a specific group. And later authors are more general in their use of the term Ebionites, just as a catch-all category for Judean followers of Jesus. But let's look at and unpack some of this, and I'll refer to some other sources. There's three main things that I want to highlight in Irenaeus's passage here that may be key characteristics of the Ebionites if they were truly a group in and of themselves, and definitely is, would be characteristic of other Judean followers of Jesus as well. First of all, the Christology that they have, how they view Jesus is talked about. Secondly, what writings they use as authoritative, Irenaeus refers to, and some other subsequent authors likewise do. And finally, their Judean way of life, that they practice Judean culture and the Judean way, and, uh, way of life in a full way, including observance of the Torah. First of all, let's deal with Christology. How did the Ebionites view Jesus? Irenaeus gives us a little tiny bit of information. He says this, those who are called Ebionites acknowledge that the world was made by God. There he's contrasting the Ebionites to some of the other people he's comparing them to. Who is he contrasting them to? Gnostic style people. We know Gnosticism is a huge category itself, but people who believe that the creator of the world is the God of the Hebrew Bible and is not the same God that sent Jesus. The Ebionites agree that the God they worship is the God who created this world. And the reason he begins that way is he's actually, the next point, going to compare the Ebionites to some Gnostic-style thinkers. He goes like this, But their attitude towards the Lord is like that of Corinthus and Carpocrates. Corinthus and Carpocrates are two teachers who advocated knowledge as a means towards salvation. Um, so this is uh, the passage from Irenaeus where he outlines what Corinthus, a Gnostic-style thinker, thought about Jesus. And then we got to piece together what is he saying about the Ebionites from this. A certain Corinthus in Asia taught that the world was not made by the first God. There's what Irenaeus contrasted about the Ebionites. He said, the Ebionites don't think like that, but by a power which was widely separated and remote from that supreme power which is above the all, and did not know the God who is over all things. Here's what he says about Jesus, and this is where we get into the material that we have to sort out how it relates to the Ebionites. Jesus, Corinthus suggested, was not born of a virgin, for that seemed to him impossible, but was the son of Joseph and Mary, just like all the rest of men, but far beyond them in justice and prudence and wisdom. So there is what Corinthus thinks about Jesus. He was not born of a virgin. He was just a son of Joseph and Mary, and he was a very wise guy extra just, extra wise. That seems to be one of the things Irenaeus is trying to say about the Ebionites. What we're inferring from this is they do not believe in the virgin birth and they believe that Jesus was a human being in the typical manner in which anyone's a human being. They're not trying to undermine Jesus' importance in the sense that they're saying Jesus was a just person. So here's what Irenaeus says next about Corinthians in the exact same passage, which I believe is another hint about the Ebionites. 
He says this, After Jesus' baptism, Christ descended upon him in the form of a dove, from the power that is above is over all things. And then he proclaimed the unknown Father and accomplished miracles. But at the end, Christ separated again from Jesus. And Jesus suffered and was raised again, but Christ remained impassable since he was pneumatic, was spiritual. Here in this passage, we have more of Corinthians' view on Jesus. And then in the later passage, we have Corinthians saying the view of the Ebionites is like Corinthians. But what I want to point out to you primarily is what I think Irenaeus has in mind, and we'll have confirmation from subsequent sources, the issue of the baptism of Jesus, the adoptionism, that the Ebionites seem to have held an adoptionistic notion that is linked up with the baptism of Jesus. What's interesting is Irenaeus says that the Ebionites do not agree with Corinthus that there are two gods. The Ebionites believe there's only one God, and that God created the world. Corinthus believes there's two gods, that there's the God who created this world, the ruler who created this world, who's bad, and there's a perfect divine father who sent Christ. The issue is that the baptism was the point at which Jesus is acknowledged as the Christ. This is what's similar about the Ebionites and Corinthus. That the baptism of Jesus is a point at which something major changes. They do not agree at all, though, on the details of what happens. So the dove is in both scenarios, though. We'll soon see in the later sources about the Ebionites. And in Corinthus, the dove issue. For Corinthus, the, the dove is almost like Christ himself coming down to join the body of Jesus in the Corinthian view the Gnostic sort of style of thinking. For the Ebionites, it's that the, the dove is important and it's a sign of the spiritual status of Jesus. So the Ebionites seem to believe that at the baptism of Jesus, there's an adoption of Jesus that gives him a new status. For the Ebionites, the baptism is the critical point when Jesus becomes the Messiah. Jesus is acknowledged as the Messiah by God and the dove coming down is a symbol of it. What does that contrast with? Why would this even be important to Irenaeus? Because people like Irenaeus believe that the Spirit was most active in playing a role in Jesus when? When he was conceived, right? If you believe in the virgin birth, as Irenaeus does, and as the Gospel of Matthew does, then you believe that it was in conception that the Spirit did something that made Jesus who he was. For the Ebionites, we have explicitly in Irenaeus that they do not believe in the virgin birth. They believe that the Spirit was active, but it was at the point of the baptism, as opposed to at, in the womb of Mary. The, the Ebionites that are being talked about here, we'll soon see there's going to be complication, because they're going to have someone else say there are two types of Ebionites, some that believe in virgin birth and some don't. Soon we'll have another church father saying that. But for the Ebionites that we're talking about here in Irenaeus, they use the Gospel of Matthew, but somehow they do not believe in such a thing as the virgin birth. So we've been talking about Christology here. Hippolytus confirms this general idea about the adoptionistic perspective here. And Hippolytus is writing in the early 3rd century, two, early 200s. Let me read you a passage from Hippolytus, which is the key one about the Ebionites. The Ebionites live conformably to Jewish customs, saying that they are justified according to the law, and saying that Jesus was justified by practicing the law. Look at this, though. He just referred to Jesus was justified by practicing the law. Jesus justified by practicing the law. Then he says this. Therefore it was that he was named both the anointed of God, the Messiah, and Jesus, since not one of the rest kept the law. 
So here we have Hippolytus saying that the Ebionites believe that Jesus followed the law to a T, and that it was because Jesus followed the law to the T that he was considered the anointed of God and considered Jesus, savior of his people, is what Joshua means. Let's go on with Hippolytus's passage here. For if any other had practiced the commandments of the law, he would have been the anointed. And the Ebionites themselves also, having done the same, are able to become anointed ones. For they say that he himself was a man like all. Jesus was a man like everyone. He was a man who followed the Torah to an extent that God acknowledged the perfect following of the Torah and that the Ebionites feel that they can follow in Jesus' footsteps in following the Torah to the T and that they too can be acknowledged by God in a similar way that the man Jesus was acknowledged by God. A human Jesus, not a virgin birth son of God Jesus. And that they use the Hebrew Bible naturally because that's what the Torah is. The Torah for first five books of Moses, but also the prophets and the writings that these followers of Jesus use as their main authority. Irenaeus referred to the fact that they use the Gospel of Matthew and that they deliberately do not like using Paul. So that gives you a sense of what writings these Ebionites are making use of. When the anti-heresy writers are giving us the information, at least Irenaeus and Hippolytus, it's not like it's ludicrous what they're saying and that it just clashes and doesn't make any sense. It makes sense. They follow the Torah to the T. They believe Jesus followed the Torah to the T. They believe that Jesus was just a man and that there was a point at which his following the law was acknowledged by God and that he was considered the Messiah because of it. So Irenaeus gives us what we've talked about so far. Hippolytus supplements it. Others seem to be dependent on Irenaeus and Hippolytus and others. And don't give us much new. In fact, Epiphanius just rants and raves about all kinds of terrible things in the way he does about every heresy he talks about. So it's hard to use Epiphanius, a 4th century patristic writer, in order to get at the Abionites. He repeats some of the same information we've got so far, though. Anyhow, now we're Oregon's talking about, in the same writing where he's countering Celsus, that pagan author who is condemning Christianity, he deals with another issue. Let us admit with Celsus that some also accept Jesus, and on that account boast that they are Christians. Quote, although they still want to live according to the law of the Jews, like the multitude of the Jews. So this is Celsus's being quoted. So Celsus, an outsider, observes that there are followers of Jesus who follow the Torah, who follow Judean customs. Celsus, an outsider, observed that, and he's critiquing Christianity because there's some who do that and some who don't do that. And there's all kinds of things going on. And then in response to that, Oregon incidentally refers to two groups of Ebionites. These are the two sects of Ebionites. The one confessing, as we do, that Jesus was born of a virgin. The other holding that he was not born in this way, but like other men. The question is, is Oregon referring to groups of followers of Jesus who label themselves Ebionites? And that there's one group of Ebionites who say, we believe that Jesus was conceived through the Spirit at birth, and that therefore he was, his status was established at birth. And that there's another group of people who call themselves Ebionites and say, we do not believe in the virgin birth, like the ones we talked about in Irenaeus. Or is Oregon loosely using the term Ebionites when he's writing in the early 200s CE, is it already common for authors to use the general term Ebionites to talk about every 
follower of Jesus who follows the Judean customs. Perhaps the latter. There's just nothing more to work with here. That quote I gave you is all we've got in that section of Oregon on the Ebionites. It's the only new piece of information beyond Irenaeus in a way, but beyond Hippolytus and Irenaeus that we have. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Kaveh, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>